Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum podcast. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And we have a great show for you today. I was actually supposed to do this show on location, but, you know, a little thing called a virus, very little thing, got in the way. Um, So I'm uh, via uh, Zoom with uh, the curator, Rob Versky. And we're going to be talking about the Transportation Museum. I've been there. It's right up the road from me, actually. Beautiful location. I was there at the auction last year. It was fascinating, to say the least. Uh, Rob, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Uh, Rob, like I said, unfortunately, <laughs> I can't be there to do the show. It would have been really great to have some uh, video right there in the museum and all that. But it is what it is. Can you uh, tell the listening audience that is not familiar, this show does go all all over the country, a little bit about the museum and uh, how it got its start? Oh, sure. Um, So uh, we've been around for about 45 years in the mid-1970s. Jim Rockefeller and uh, Tom Watson, who was the uh, chairman of IBM, uh, they both lived around here in mid-coast Maine, uh, and they were both passionate about old airplanes and cars and anything mechanical. And so they they thought to themselves, hey, maybe we could open up a museum and have a place where all the old planes and cars could be run for the public. And right about the same time in the 1970s, the airport, which is now uh, Knox County Regional Airport, the airport had three runways and uh, one of the runways was being shut down for flight operations. And it was going to be turned into an industrial park. Uh, And uh, that project didn't happen. But what that meant was there was a spot at the airport with runway access that could be done anything that a good plan had. And so it turned into a fortuitous spot and timing to put up a small hangar, bring out an old airplane and see if the public wanted to see the old planes and cars running. And it was a fantastic success. Uh, So the museum started with uh, just a small 3,000-square-foot hangar, one one airplane and two cars, uh, and started putting on shows every summer. And now we're we're a 100-plus-acre campus. We've got about a dozen buildings. We have over 100 vehicles when it comes to cars, airplanes, motorcycles. Um, And then we've got another 10 to 12,000 other artifacts, books, parts, art, all sorts of things. So, I mean, over 45 years, we've gone from literally a dirt road um, to uh, a a sprawling complex of transportation history. Wow. Yeah. And there's, it's great because, you know, all the car museums I've been to in the past, and I did one of these podcasts actually with the, um, I want to say the Black Hawk Museum, and in uh, the East Bay of uh, out in California in the San Francisco Bay Area, beautiful museum, very unusual cars, but they focus on cars. You know, uh, this is pretty rare where you focus on transportation. Are there other museums like this that you're aware of? Not really. Um, I mean, at, from that perspective, you know, uh, I, I came I, in previous positions. I've worked for multiple aviation museums. You know, and that's the thing at those museums we had airplanes we didn't have cars um and it's the same vice versa it's 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 a hard thing to do in the first place just you know uh to even even if we weren't operating you know there's that's just a lot more stuff to manage and care for and 
diverse skill sets and, and people to have around. Um, so yeah, there's, there's really very few uh, museums that have that go across different transportation fields, as it were. It almost seems to me like that would be kind of a maintenance nightmare because of the variety that you have. Uh, how is that all handled? Um, so that's the part where, you know, we can we can kind of specialize, you know, in the sense that part of the ways that we take care of our collections is we have an aviation workshop and we have an automotive workshop. You know, for each of those shops, we have full-time conservator who keeps track of everything, but both our, our aircraft conservator and our automotive conservator, they both have their teams of volunteers. They each have 50 to 75 volunteers at any given time who do a lot of the work. You know, there's volunteers who all they do is they come in and they polish cars and make sure that brass shines and make sure the tires are filled with air. And then we have guys who are able to fabricate parts out of nothing to make these cars and planes keep on going. You know, that that's where, you know, you do kind of have some separate, separate sphere stuff kind of going on. But, uh, you know, it, it still takes a lot of coordination. Very, very often, it, you know, when an airplane needs to get moved, the automotive guys are being sought out to give a hand with that. Speaking of that, are any of the, are a number of the airplanes, are they flyable at this point? Oh, or? yeah. Yes. Um, we have, um, when it comes to aircraft, we, we have about uh, 16 to 20 aircraft in our collection. And about 12 of them fly right now. We've got, and we've got four more that are being uh, restored and maintained in order to get them flying, uh, hopefully by the end of the year. But, you know, we've just lost a month of work. So yeah. we'll see if our timelines change. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, now, what are your thoughts on something that, uh, you know, I've heard some people say, the purest perhaps, that um, you can over-restore a vehicle. And what, what? Just your opinion on that. What do you think about that comment? We definitely consider that when when we're working on stuff, um, particularly since we are going to to run things. Uh, you know, it's a it's a very particular question for us. Where, look, we could we could do everything exactly right to the way that vehicle came off the assembly line in in 1912, but we may now have also made the car so fragile that we can't demonstrate it and we can't show it to the public and we can't let people experience it as it functioned in the world. Uh, you know, so that's, that's the part where it's like, you know, uh, you know, one of, one of the things that I tell visitors when they're, when they ask how much of your collection actually runs and it's like, if it leaks, it works, you know, (laughs) you know, you know, if we were to do everything perfectly exactly right, then we'd also be draining everything and pickling everything, and we wouldn't be able to operate. We just we wouldn't be able to take the risk of even the, the paint getting chipped. Right. What is the most unusual thing that you have in the museum? <laughs> uh, the most unusual thing. You know, in, in a lot of ways, it, it depends. Because we have so many different collections you know i mean we've got bicycles and there are just bicycle museums out there in the world that sort of thing yeah um you know it it a lot of it depends on on the 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 person and the collection (laughs) at any given time um what what i think is is the most unusual is those those things um in the museum that that 
kind of are at these moments of change and are and are very are very just you know they're showing exactly when things went from one thing to another. Um, so, like from that perspective, one of the things that I think is really unusual in the museum is we have um, a uh, a Colson Fauntleroy wheelchair, um, <laughs> and you wouldn't think that a wheelchair would be in a transportation museum yeah. when you, have, you know Model Ts and things like that. But the thing is that this was a wheelchair that was designed in the and built in the 1920s and 30s for. Uh, for the for survivors of polio, um, and so what it is is that it's it's a, a three wheeled wheelchair um, that has levers uh, that that then the um, the users the user is going to pump with their arms, and it even has fully articulated steering. So you twist the handles on this wheelchair in order to steer the front wheel. Um, and so to me, it's just this fantastic example of before we had a solution to polio, um, there was this attempt uh, and a successful one at that for uh, for polio survivors to be mobile and independent and free to move about. Um, it's got bicycle tires on it. I think Colson made bicycles alongside all of this. They innovated. It's got full spring systems on it. So you can go for, you know, on a bumpy, bumpy road. This thing's perfectly comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? That's awesome. Yeah, and that's the thing. And, you know, what they stopped making these sorts of wheelchairs after polio was solved in the 1950s. But there are now other companies today that are making these sorts of lever wheelchairs again for uh, for like paraplegics and things like that, um, you know. Once again, it's the same thing. They're using bicycle parts and assembling them in a different way to give people independence. What's old is new again. Is there any gray areas between what's transportation and what's not? You know, like that. To me, I, I do understand the, the the transportation, but let's say something gets into pleasure. Is that still considered? Like um, a, a boat, a, a boat is considered or can be considered pleasure, but it's still transportation. I mean, mm-hmm. do you ever have any, you know, thoughts of where where the lines are? <laughs> I think in that sense, uh, we're we're constantly having to draw lines that that are are in some ways they're 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 always somewhat arbitrary. Yeah. Um, you, you know, uh, because. Uh, it all comes down to how somebody uses something. And from that perspective, then for us, it's more about, is it, is it a, a story that we're able to tell appropriately? Um, and is it a thing that we're able to take care of? You know, so like from that perspective, we don't collect boats. We are a landlocked museum. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and there are plenty of other boat museums in the area. Yeah. Uh, so we just let that one go. Yeah. But, the same time, plenty of people come to the museum and say, "Hey, you're a transportation museum. Where are the boats?" Well, I saw them at your auction last year. There were some beauties, so they mm-hmm. do at least get to the auction. And we'll talk yes. about the auction a little bit later. Um, it was really quite exciting. Um, what about the? Is it called like the Orn Ornthopter Ornhopter or something like that? The Ornithopter. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that because that's a wild looking <laughs> thing. Right. Yeah. And and so yeah, the, the Ornithopter was. 
was uh, this whole class of aircraft that were made, you know, uh, in in the 1800s and even after the Wright brothers flew, where you had all sorts of inventors who were looking at at flight and saying, well, if we can make a vehicle that flaps like a bird, then we should be able to fly like a bird. Um, and and so we have one of these few ornithopters that actually survived. Um, it was it was made in the early 1900s in Pennsylvania, um, and it's this uh, wood wagon frame. I guess is the best way to put it. it you know, when you when you're trying to do it without standing next to it, um, and in the middle of it, there there's a seat and and, a, and an engine, um, and then uh, up top you've got four wings that when you pull down on the front wings. Uh, you know, uh, the back ones go up and they kind of seesaw back and forth. Uh, and it's basically got um, on this big wood frame of these wings is basically chicken wire and then turkey feathers in order to try and create some idea of lifts. Oh, my you know, goodness. The, the motor would make the wings flap back and forth. <laughs> and then it would have theoretically taken off. Has, uh, have you ever seen video of one of those actually lifting? Those, yeah, those early ornithopters, those, those things, uh, you know, the, if they get off the ground, it's because they're shaking and shimmying so much, <laughs> they vibrate a few inches off the ground. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I find really interesting about ornithopters is um, they're actually, in recent years, there has been success in making ornithopters. Um, mm. Uh, the th- um, it's a it's an aeronautical engineering department in Canada. I, I'm drawing blank on the school right now, um, but they made an ornithopter a few years ago, um, and it, it shows that the um, the idea is sound. It was that in the early 1900s they didn't have the materials. Uh, what they're doing now is they're using carbon fiber and really light foam and saran wrap and things like that wow. to create a strong but flapping structure. Um, so maybe maybe in, in the future, we, we all will have ornithopters <laughs> just when we get the material technology to catch up. Oh, that is so funny. The pioneers of the helicopter, they had a really difficult time because the blade would go through and, and, and make an air pocket for the second blade to come around. And uh, so they had to make it so that the blade, you know, kind of like goes back and forth like that in order to to actually really work but they you know think of all the trials and errors that they had and you know on any type of plane or any type of aviation yeah yeah pretty yeah. pretty scary let's uh let's talk a little bit about the the vehicles in uh, in each category uh like for instance i think the ornithopter would probably be one of the most interesting things you have in aviation but well let's, what else do you have in aviation that's really interesting um well i mean in that sense like when you're talking about uh helicopters we have we have only one helicopter in our collection um and it's actually a prototype helicopter um that oh. uh that did, did not succeed um be, because of the kind of these issues that you were talking about um it's a um it's it's called the the helico speedster um and uh, it was made by a Austrian arms dealer who got an, who poached an engineer from Sikorsky. Um, and so when, when you look at the Helico Speedster, you see a lot of the same stuff, the same kind of 
fabric over a tubular frame that you have with the early Sikorskis. Um, and ours is from the middle of World War II, about 1944. Um, and the idea was actually they were trying to, the goal was to put a jet engine on it. Um, but jet technology was not there yet. The, the jet engine was, was too big and heavy to lift anything at that point. Uh, so they had to transition to, uh, you know, a, a piston engine. And it failed not because there was anything wrong with the design, but basically because of personality conflicts between the two guys, um, you know. And so it, it's, it's interesting in that sense that, uh, you know, perhaps you would have had some, some viable competition for Sikorsky in, in those early days if, if people, if those two guys had been able to overcome their differences, essentially. Isn't that funny? You know, I, I've said a number of times on this show that, um, you know, the, the, the story of an object a lot of times makes it really fascinating or interesting and in some cases valuable. Um, so I'd like to hear um, some of the stories or let's start out with the most interesting story related to any of the, the uh, vehicles there uh, in any category. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd say one of the... Um uh, one of the, the, the most uh, popular things that we have in the museum is um, we have a, um, an a early 1900s gypsy wagon. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so the kind of, 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 you know, brightly colored horse-drawn wagons that, that Roma people would have lived in for, for many years. Um, you know, and, and so that's, uh, you know, r- right off the bat, um, the thing that is very interesting about it is... Um, uh, traditionally, when a, a Roma person dies, uh, part of the funeral is burning the wagon. Um, so, so the fact that ours survived uh, shows that um, even though we don't know who owned it and 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 what happened to them, um, you know, we, we we already know that something unusual happened because this somehow survived. Um, wow. And same time it's it's a really interesting snapshot for people when they come into the museum because you know it's ours is is bright red all of our red vehicles are really the most popular ones in the first place they really stand out um but this is also one where you look at it and you can see you know how how uh you know unusual the life of a roma person is and was i mean they they have a very small living space but it's still ornate it's personal they you know they they clearly are are passionate about the way they live in in when you look at what's inside it's still there's lots of fine fabrics and quality materials and things like that wow so you know it's not it's not like they're they're living in in poor conditions as it were um you know, uh, so it's this fascinating snapshot of of a life, and and once again, from today's perspective, is that the tiny house movement is something that people talk about a lot. And you look at it, and you're like, this is not all that far off from the tiny houses that people are looking at moving into today. Right, right. I know there's a movement there. Um, th- when I was in there last year, I started reading about the first um, the first car theft. It was a woman. <laughs> Yeah, yes. can you tell that story? That that was an awesome. That's an awesome story. Yeah, Bertha Benz. Yeah, um, we have a a replica of the Benz patent uh, wagon, which um, Carl Benz, who you know, if people are unfamiliar with cars, you know, that's the Benz of Mercedes Benz. 
Um, so Carl Benz is really the the first successful automobile uh, from this perspective. You know, he he does the the the, the perfect matching of the internal combustion engine with a a a, a free non horse drawn chassis, as it were. Um, and uh, in the first place, it's a fascinating thing when you look at it because it is it's very much this fragile. Uh, vehicle with very tall spindly wheels uh the engine is mounted right behind this very small bench seat um and the flywheel is this big big you know four foot across spinning piece of of metal um it's not you know it's one of those moments uh osha would not approve of this if this is the sort of thing that you would happen today because it's spinning right behind the driver you know, a couple hundred times a minute. Um, and so the, the theft story is that his wife, Bert, Berta Benz, uh, she decided that uh, she and the kids were going to go visit uh, her parents about 50 miles away from where they were living. And so she lo- loaded up the kids. And I think it's a single bench seat um, and it's a tiller steer. So it's like a, a rudder, boat rudder to, to steer it. Loaded up the kids and are dri- and she's driving in the 1890s, you know, 1887, uh, you know, over dirt roads through towns and villages, places that have never seen an automobile before because it never existed, um, you know. And part of this journey is also um, they run out of gas, um, and of course, you know, there's no there's no such thing as a gas station. There's no need for one, um, but fortunately. Um, uh, fuel kerosene is is sold in pharmacies and general stores because it's essentially the same stuff that people are lighting their homes with. So Bert is able to go into a shop and and get a quart of fuel to finish the journey. So so yeah, basically the the inventor of of the of the modern automobile also had it stolen by his wife. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, I love the. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched. Ken Burns, uh, Horatio's Drive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that story. Uh, the first actually transcontinental trip with, with yeah. this car. And what they went through on the way is just totally amazing. To, and it was all because of a $100 bet or something like that. It's a great show. Um, yeah, yeah. I love I, I love it. Um, they have the car on display at the Smithsonian. Um, uh, yeah, and it's one of the, my favorite things at the Smithsonian's American History Museum uh, because they have it posed with mannequins with the with the um, uh, Horatio's dog in in the front seat of the of the car, and they're stuck in a ditch, and it's and it's just beautiful. Um, and on top of it, they have the goggles that the dog wore on ah. the in in the exhibit. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, now I know someone would want to ask this question and i don't know if you know you probably know uh what's the most valuable thing that you have in the museum <laughs> um you know i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> the, the the um you know for, for us um you know the biggest issue when it comes to value is that you know since we we don't sell our collections you know it's almost impossible to put a value on things because the thing is if something were to happen to our museum and we have to go replace our vehicles we can't right you know it's like we have 
1918 uh, Model T uh, fire truck that was used by the Farmington Fire Department here in Maine. You know, so that's the thing. If something happens to that, sure, we can go out and get another Model T fire truck. You know, that's that's a relatively easy thing, but it's not the Farmington fire truck. Yeah. It doesn't have that history of of a main community making yeah. that transition from a horse drawn fire pump to an internal combustion one. Yeah. So. As an appraiser myself, I've run into that. You know, I I did an appraisal last year at the School of the Blind with Helen Keller's first letter. You know, I mean, how do you put a price um, on on something like that? It's really tough. But I mean, yeah. do you, is there a Bugatti or something really? Do you have something really? Uh, unique as far as vehicles go? I mean, we have a lot of unique vehicles in that sense. I mean, we have um, a uh, 1907 uh, Vanderbilt Renault race car. Um, This is one of five surviving cars that Willie K. Vanderbilt had ordered from Renault in order to start racing here in the United States. Wow. Um, You know, so, and that's the only... You know, I I can't remember the exact number. Ten or twelve of them were built in the first place. You know, and he convinced all of his his rich buddies to buy them so that they could start doing racing. Um, you know, so so from that perspective, you know, the fact that there's only one of you know it's only one of five left. Um, ours is one of the few that's also part of a public collection. Most of them are in private hands. Oh. So we're one of the few places where you can go any day of the week that the coronavirus is over, you know, come in and you can look at the, one of the cars that got racing started in America. Wow. Um, Racing started in America. That's, that's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, And uh, what are, I'll just name uh, off a couple of some of the other rare cars and, and motorcycles, if you would. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to rare stuff, I mean, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, for us, sometimes it's like, you know, what, what isn't rare? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, because it's like when it comes to aircraft, um, we have um, one of the, the Pitcairn mail wings um, and a, a Pitcairn was um, the, uh, the predecessor of Eastern Airlines. Um, mm-hmm. Pitcairn started making airplanes in the 1920s in order to fly airmail um, along the East Coast. Um, and, and so these were the planes where they were starting to build up more capacity. You know, it could carry in the 1920s and thirties, it could carry, you know, maybe 700 pounds of mail, but it could also be converted to carry three passengers. And over time, Pitcairn is able to build bigger and bigger aircraft and also improve service throughout the Southeast. Um, and ours is particularly special because it came from the Pitcairn family. Um, so not only did are there very few pit cairns left in the world, but ours came essentially straight from the source, you know, which is another thing that you really can't, uh, you know, overcome essentially. Yeah, I do want to just touch on a couple of cars, and then I know you have motorcycles there too, <laughs> which I think I, I saw some real beautiful ones there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are besides the Renault, uh, the Vanderbilt one? Uh, if you wouldn't mind touching on a couple of other rare, I know you said they're all rare, but yeah, rare and unusual, yeah. you may not see at other, other places. Is Right. Um, we have a, a 1905 uh, Panhard uh, Lavasseur. You'll always have to apologize. My French accents are terrible. <laughs> um, 
but um, it's it's a uh, you know 1905. It's a, a French luxury car. Ours is it is it is big. It is a big heavy car. Um, but it's 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 a, a beautiful blue car that was. Um, I saw that. Yeah. 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 It, you know, and it, and it's a car that its design um, is is influenced by by the King of Belgium. Um, well, actually, the King of Belgium's mistress. Um, the the design of the seats was based on on her suggestions. It's just one of those cars you look at it and and you both how rudimentary it is, uh, but also how luxurious it is for the era. Um, so that's something that we have. Um, we have uh, uh, t- uh, two Rolls Royces. Um, uh, one is a, a 1914 uh, Rolls Royce um, that was uh, owned by. Um, Long, uh, Alice Longfellow, which is Longfellow's daughter, um, and this was a car that was over in Europe during World War One. Um, so it's it's a it, you know it basically saw action as it were, um, and then when it came back to the United States, um, it was owned by a fellow named Alan Bemis, um, and uh, Bemis was not only an, an old car aficionado, um, but he was also a, a scientist. Um, and he did a lot of work um, with uh, uh, weather monitoring on uh, Mount Washington. And he used his Rolls Royce to get monitoring equipment up to the top of Mount Washington. Unreal. So, so we, have, we have that. Wow. Um, and um, we have uh, uh, Clara Bow's Rolls Royce. Um, so this was uh, it's a, a 1920s uh, Rolls Royce that was was given to Clara Bow um, as, as a gift. Um, so, you know, it's just wonderful to have, uh, you know, one of one of her cars and have that that throwback to 1920 flapper scenes. And, you know, Clara Bow very famously loved to drive fast and had a lot of fast cars. So, you know, this is one of those kinds of cars. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about a couple of rare motorcycles. What do you have there? Mm-hmm. Um, so our, our motorcycle collection is when it comes to our vehicles, it's the, the smallest collection we have. We have about a dozen motorcycles. Um, so, uh, one of, one of the rare ones that we have is a, a, is a, a a 1901 Steffi, um, which is essentially the beginning of motorcycles. Hmm. Um, really what it is, is it's a a motor mounted on a bicycle. (laughs) You know, Steffi, Steffi just made the motor and the stuff. And then it was up to you to get a bicycle and put it all together. Ah, uh, it's, wow. it's, it's the, the handyman special, as it were. Um, but it's it's a beautiful bike. And when you look at it, you see that in some ways, motorcycle design hasn't changed from the beginning, you know, in, in the sense that you've got uh, the, the motor mounted along the bottom between the wheels. Um, you've got a fuel tank, you know, positioned between the handlebars and the seat um you know it's it's you know dramatically been improved it's far more reliable uh you can get a lot more power out of it but it's it's a much much different uh uh uh, you know vehicle yet being the same (laughs) wow wow that's great um most people don't like when i ask this question but i'm going to ask you anyway Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that is uh, what's your favorite thing in the museum if you could drive one away um, if you were given the keys to it, say, "Hey, it's yours for working here." The vehicle that I would that I would take if I could just take a car car home every day um, is one that's not part of any of our exhibits. Oh. Um, it's actually um, the 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 truck that uh, our flight line crew uses during during our summer events. 
it's hmm. uh, it's a 1956 Ford pickup truck. The truck you, you probably walk past it and not notice it because it's just gray. You know, it's got our logo on the side so that people know that it's it's you know ours. Um, but uh, when it comes to that's the thing. What I what I like about it is that you know it's still working after all these years. It has a it has a job and it's and it's functional. And I, that's, but at the same time, you know it's it's still beautiful. Like when you look at those 1950s pickup trucks, you know uh, they've got you know there's there's still a lot of design and thought that goes into you know that that hood and and front end of the truck. You know they they they're still aerodynamic while while they're they're working hard uh and it, you know to me that's just a that, that that's the sort of thing that if i was going to have a have a car to take home it'd be something like that yeah i had a 1941 dodge uh pickup truck that i i just loved and uh, it was one of those things i was never going to sell but you know things change as you go along in life and uh and unfortunately uh i made the mistake of selling it i'd still like to have it today um <laughs> And let's talk about the auction because one of the things I I always wonder when it comes to museum is is the funding is the mm-hmm. is the auction actually part of your annual funding or fundraiser or any type of yep yeah yep and that 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 is that is its purpose um, you know uh, the the auction um, I mean we've got we've got you know two full time staff whose whose purpose and function is to. Uh, organize the the auction every year you know um you know once once the the, the you know the auction is the the third saturday of august uh, every year and you know september 1 hits they're already thinking about the the auction for the following year the the auction is you know uh produces um a good 10 to 25% of our our revenue of the museum's revenue for the year mm-hmm. um so it's 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 both uh, very important, um, but at the same time, you know, we realize that you know auctions, you know, the auction market changes. Uh, so we're always ready to adjust according to what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, where we you know on average get about two hundred to two hundred and thirty cars uh, to put through the auction. Um, in the last few years, we've also had an automobilia auction of of gas pumps and signs and things like that. Um, you know, and, and that's the, that's the thing when, when someone pays their, their buyer's premium or their, their bidder registration, you know, all of that is stuff that then helps support our ability to do exhibits, take care of our cars, put on education programming. I mean, all of, all of that is, is yeah, they, you know, the auction uh, helps us fulfill our mission. What can someone do from afar, like uh, someone that's listening to this podcast? They can simply go to your website and take a poke around and and, and see what you have going on. Um, mm-hmm. It's just simply owlshead.com, right? Is that what it is? Owlshead.org. Dot org. Owlshead.org for anyone. Yep. And I will link that um, with this podcast as well. Uh, what is the museum looking forward to when we get through this situation? I mean, I've been thinking about that. You know, if there are ways that, uh, you know, the social distancing could possibly work, um, you know, limited visitors, I guess. Um, so what are what are the thoughts about the reopening possibility? Um, well, I mean, in, in the first place, we're, we're really looking forward to reopening um, because, uh, you know, it's 2020 and it's it's Maine's bicentennial. Um, and so 
we have an exhibit opening in honor of Maine's bicentennial. Yeah. Uh, we were planning to open it in June. You know, we'd, we'd like to still be able to do that, but we'll adjust as necessary. We're, we're talking right now about what, what reopening looks like for the museum. You know, realizing that, you know, it's just like there's rules for going to the grocery store these days. Yeah. You know, we have to think these things through. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the advantages that we have when it comes to uh, whatever our, our reopening looks like is that we have a really big building. <laughs> yes, you do. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, uh, you know, so uh, we have opportunities for people to spread out. So, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, you know, so it'll, it, it'll be a question of just how, how do we manage that? You know, so. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about stories, the thought occurred to me that you probably have some visitors that have great stories. Do you hear a lot of them when you're you're talking to people there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Very often, um, you know, uh, all of us give tours and demonstrate vehicles and things like that all the time. You know, and uh, you, you'll always people will start telling you stories. And sometimes I'm I'm not the one teaching them. They're they're teaching me. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And you yeah. you find out that you know you're giving someone a ride in a Model T. And they start talking about, you know, their grandfather's Model T or how they learned to drive on, on their farm, you know, in a Model T. Um, you know, and that's, you get a lot of first car stories that way. You know, uh, people uh, last year we had um, 1941 Ford Woody wagon donated to the museum for the auction. And uh, the number of people who, while it was on display at the museum, were telling stories about their youth and their times in, in Ford Woody wagons. Um, you know, you just, you want it, you wish you could just always have a recorder going to catch these, these stories of, of people's experiences. That's right. That's right. The most interesting car I ever sold at auction just had a wonderful story. The first time I saw it, it was, it was basically an auction goer and he said, Hey, come to my house sometime. I want to show you my collection. And so I went there, and he said, let me show you something downstairs. And it was a 1906 or 1904, I can't remember, Cadillac, one lunger. He grew up on a farm where it was used as a saw. They took the back wheel off and put a belt to a saw blade and used it for Mm -hmm. a saw. And that's how he grew up. Um, And he completely restored it to perfection. It was such a beautiful car. And when he passed away... His wife had me come to the house, and I actually sold the car at auction. And it was just a—it really was a, a tremendous car. It was just wonderful. I love to hear those things run. And uh, one one last thing, I know you have you have at least one Stanley Steamer, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, we have a, a Stanley Model K um, in our in our collection. Um, we also have a, a locomobile on loan to us, um, so we're we're able to tell quite a bit of of the Stanley story in that sense. Yeah. Um, because the same model locomobile that the Stanleys used to drive up Mount Washington. So, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that car is really interesting to me because, you know, first of all, you could drive anywhere with that car. You know, if you, all you have to do is keep the steam going. And mm-hmm. um, I know they've actually talked about in the past um, to revive some type of steam car. You know, I, I just, I always thought the, the early electric cars and the steam cars are really 
very fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and that's and we have a couple of electric cars too. Um, so that and that's the thing. Actually, our 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 nineteen twelve Woods Electric is is just a few feet away from our two Stanleys, and so it's this great opportunity to talk to people that you know that it wasn't a, it wasn't obvious that there was going to be gas powered cars. Yeah. So. That's right. And those batteries, you just think of the technology back then. It's a wonder that didn't succeed more. But it was basically battery technology because the motor was the motor was easy enough. It's just the battery. Yeah. Well, and, it, and a lot of it was also the size of the United States. Um, mm. Like that's the real issue is that you know it's a lot easier to transport gas and refuel. When you're trying to drive long distances, I mean that's the whole issue even these days with with you know Teslas and, and electric cars is how far can you get on a charge? That's right. You know, so that's the thing. Uh, electric cars were really successful in urban areas. The taxi cab companies in New York City preferred the electric cars for for many years in the early uh, 1900s. Um, you know, and so in that sense, it's it's unfortunate when you realize that. Uh, the transportation world could have been, you know, a different a different technology depending on what your need was. And maybe cities could have all been electric cars, and then only when you went, needed to go for a long distance drive did you need a gas car. Uh, last question: What are other plans um, that the museum has for the future? Hmm. Um, well, the the first thing that 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 comes to mind right now is. Um, you know, we've been uh, looking at um, how else we can get more of the museum experience online for people. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's really unfortunate right now that uh, people can't see things like our Stanley steamers or our electric car. You know, I mean, you can go you can go on our website and, and you can see a picture of it and, and you'll get, uh, you know, some some information about it. And and it's a you know, it's an, a nice snippet. Um, but it's not the same as standing in front of it, you know, so we're kind of trying to figure out how, how can we do, how can we do more stuff, um, you know, uh, for, for people who can't come, you know, and, and part of that is also because we are in mid coast Maine. There's, there's not many roads to us. Yeah. You have to really decide to come to us. That's right. Um, so if, if we can do more to come to go to other people, that's, that would be a, a great success for us. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And the website is owlshead.org. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. All right, everyone. So we'll be back with another episode soon. Uh, Thank you for listening.